0: This conversational corner a podcast on history culture and politics in a broad perspective I am your host avi Wolf while everyone knows that World War II started in 1939 with the conquest of Poland by Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia it is only recently that scholars and especially broader audiences have started to pay more serious attention to the serious consequences for the residents of Poland on the Soviet side of the border between 1939 and 1941. One organization aiming to help correct that imbalance is the Cracy Siberia Organization with its panoramic virtual museum available at kresy-siberia.org. With me today to discuss this experience and what it means today is Tim Bucknell. Tim, welcome. Thank you. So let me ask you the question I ask all my guests. How did you get in, uh, into such a subject? It's an important topic, but it's a fairly obscure one, given the totality of the Second World War. It is indeed. It's
1: from family experience, and um, more specifically from um, a family that I knew growing up, and I remember hearing at a very young age the stories of uh, the deportations, although I didn't understand it and I had no context for it and I, I couldn't reconcile it with what I'd been taught about World War II at school. When I heard about Russians putting people on trains, I I, I couldn't understand it. So many years later, and then I eventually found the Cressy Siberia Foundation, um, through an advert in a newspaper when they were appealing for old photographs of uh, Polish servicemen. And from there, I, it felt so, such a great fit that I just got uh, involved more deeply with each stage.
0: Very interesting. Um, I will note that I myself have a uh, something of a personal connection, and maybe we'll discuss this uh, down the road. Uh, my father, uh, my grandfather, uh, of blessed memory, uh, was from Tomaszew Lubelski, uh, which was oh. in the region we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, he took his uh, family across the border, and he and he and his whole family ended up in the in around Arkhangelsk. But uh, before we get wow. to that, yeah, before we get to that. Let's um, help orient our listeners a little bit. What exactly is the Crecy and how would, say, your average person be able to find it on a map?
1: Well, the Kresy, um, which probably got its name f- uh, from the German word for line, um, was historically um, a border region of Eastern Poland. It's, the exact definition has changed. Um, as Poland has declined since the 16th century uh, and lost more of its territory into the uh, to the Russians, and in the current context now, it's pretty much understood that uh, when using the word Kresy or Kresy Vashodny, the Eastern Kresy, that you're referring to the lands uh, lost um, to the Soviets in World War Two. With and possibly the mention of the Outer Cressy sometimes is um, a, a land where uh, the 1930s uh, Stalinist anti-Polish operations were conducted, uh, but um, the the main Cressy that uh, we concentrate on um, roughly corresponds to a line halfway through Belarus and then continue that line down to chop off um the west western bit of ukraine and then a little bit of eastern lithuania at the top
0: okay so before we get to what the soviets did uh let's talk about uh, poland between the uh, two world wars poland is now an independent country after 200 years of being subjected by other empires uh, and includes not only um, core uh, Polania but also this region known as the Crecy, which was a fairly um, diverse region. So who who exactly who, who if I were if you were to put me in a time machine and send me back to the Crecy and I'd you know do a tour of the region, what kind of hmm. people would I run into? Um, going from
1: north to south, you'd you um would initially find cities that were almost split 50-50 between Poles and Jews. And they'd be set in the surrounding countryside um, of Ruthenians, which is Belarusians in the north and Ukrainians in the south. And then there were also these smaller communities, um, the Armenians, the Georgians, and the Tatars are very important important historical community that uh, were more in the northern parts of the Kresay, which are now Lithuania and Belarus.
0: Okay, so quite a bunch of interesting people. So, and so 1939 comes, and Poland is invaded from two sides. Nazi Germany invades or conquers about two-thirds of the country, and the Soviet Union invades about one-third, which includes this Kresi, this border region. Now, I know from family stories, um, like I said, that my, uh, my grandfather took his family from the quote-unquote Nazi side to the Soviet side because he got a warning uh, from Menachem Begin, whose family was from Breslitovsk, and who warned the members of Beitar to get out. And I know that he was exiled uh, to, he and his family were exiled to Arkhangelsk. What I don't know is how exactly that policy developed. Was it that the Soviet army invaded and immediately they started expelling people, or was it something that developed, a a policy of oppression that developed over time?
1: It developed over time, or rather it took time to implement. Um, We're pretty sure that uh, the Soviets had lists when they entered the country in um, September 1939 um, of of those who were already living in the East. But, of course, um, they wouldn't have known um, about the refugees from the West and wouldn't have really uh, had as much information on them. So the... First deportations were in February 1940, and the they were initially ta- targeted at a class, mostly at a class um, that you could call uh, military settlers, who were Polish citizens, not necessarily ethnic Poles, who had been given land for military service in 1920 and they had played a role in the defeat of the Soviet Union in the Battle of Warsaw, and they were a prime target for deportation. Now, the um, refugees from the West, that, that they were rounded up a bit later from the April of 1940, so you can tell that um, it took some time for the instruments of oppression to uh, to be wound up.
0: So um, it's interesting that you mentioned there are two distinct groups and it takes time. Was there a specific overarching philosophy to this approach of oppressions, or was it simply, well, here's a group I don't like because they beat us, and oh, here's a group that could give us trouble, so let's deport them, and so on and so forth? In other words, did Stalin, when they when they started with the invasion, said, okay, eventually we're going to have to lop all the heads off and deport everybody? Or was it basically that they uh, gradually uh, just decided to uh, take care of whatever elements they considered to be dangerous to them?
1: Um, it's actually a, a good description that you gave um, about people who would cause trouble. There was there's an element of both but it, it was planned that the eastern borderlands la- would be demographically re-engineered it just so happened that the the Polish citizens who happened to be living there were also the ones who were on all sorts of unpleasant Soviet lists because of various patriotic or military or political activities. Now that's I must emphasize that despite the theoretical plan to Belarusianise the north of Kresy and Ukrainianise the south, that um, in practice, both those groups were heavily repressed and deported. And in some villages in the north, Belarusians were the first to be deported in the first wave because they owned land. So there were... Categories sort of blurred into one another, but were, the waves of deportation did have distinct characteristics.
0: Okay. And so now that we discussed about now we discussed uh, who was deported, where were they sent?
1: Right. The first, the February the um, February deportations, like your family were sent to Arkhangelsk and uh, points east my the people that i um talk to most um the survivors that have memories of Arkhangelsk and so that's from that first wave of deportation that's that's what i'm most familiar with although of course there were other um points east but of course the further east it was, the higher the 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 rate of attrition. Just on, on the journeys, pe- more people would die even before reaching them. And now the April um, the April deportations involved the widows and families of the officers killed at Katyn, and they were sent to Kazakhstan. Uh, the northern part, and then the June, um, the June 1940 deportation um, was again was, a, was to Arkhangol, Arkhangelsk, to Kazakhstan, to Kalima, uh, anywhere where, and even some to places like Eastern Ukraine where labour was needed. And then the final wave in june nineteen forty one um, by which time the the Soviet Union had conquered all of Lithuania, those people again went to the white were sent to the white sea and and again spread all over the pretty much all over the most hostile areas of the Soviet Union.
0: Wow. Uh, that's 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 quite the spread and quite very dangerous uh, dangerous territory if uh, my Ann Applebaum uh, is up to snuff. Yeah. So so were they? Um, speaking of Ann Applebaum's book on the Gulag, she mentions how uh, the national deportees, uh, both before uh, Nazi Germany invaded in 1941 and after, tended to group themselves, I guess, into ethnic uh, ethnic enclaves if for sheer survival, if for nothing else. Was there a tendency like that among those who were deported among the Kresi, or did they say, no, no we all have to work together as much as possible, uh, regardless of who's who? Now,
1: um, now they did trade with um, groups like Ukrainians, uh, but they did try to stay together because... And some, um, when some families were deported, they were deported with their neighbours, so they managed to keep together some small little communities. But there were um, there were interactions for the sake of survival with other communities, and, and interestingly enough, the the poles that were sent to Archangels, um met the survivors who were deported from Minsk in the thirties, um, an earlier wave of Poles and they banded together. And some of the ones in the thirties had managed to bring entire libraries and medical books and that sort of equipment. And so, yeah, there was a tendency to group together for, for, for comfort really.
0: Wow. Were there any efforts, uh, Before we get to Operation Barbarossa, were there any efforts to, I guess, like uh, Jews did in uh, ghettos later on, to document or to write or to begin memoirs to try and have a written record of what they were going through, or were they simply too overwhelmed? There was some effort um,
1: when it was found that it was possible to send letters to Japan the Polish ambassador in Japan became extremely important, and um, he collected a lot of testimony and managed to keep records of where people were and who, who had been, uh, who had vanished. And there was there was some sort of communication back home as well. There was so people knew. Uh, where people were and what was happening uh, because uh, partly I, I guess it was useful to see who people were writing to back home so you could find more enemies of the state in inverted commas uh, I know a wonderful story about um, a, a family I know very well the Tribokovsky family from Novogrodek um, that they previously owned a farm and employed um, a family of Belarusians and this family, the family managed to track them down and send them a goose through the mail. And it actually reached the gulag. And because 1940 was the untypically cold winter, it, it would actually have arrived in edible condition. And, and you can imagine what that meant to them. Oh, I'll bet. <laughs> yeah.
0: Wow. So how is it, uh, how is it that they were able to send mail to Japan? Why specifically that country? Why was that available?
1: Um, I'm not sure. That's the, it's the honest answer. They would have, they just kept trying and they found that um, that for some reason that got through. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's, it could, it's, It might be a well-known thing that I'm completely ignorant of, but they tried everything and and those got
0: through. Okay, okay, fair enough. So, deportations have happened, uh, the last one being, absurdly enough, on the eve of Operation Barbarossa. And now Operation Barbarossa has happened. Nazi armies and their allies are now invading the Soviet Union wholesale. Uh, Soviet armies are being wiped out. Uh, the SS is uh, going all over the place, slaughtering everybody. And, uh, the so- and uh, Stalin, as cruel as he is, needs every, needs every fresh body he can get. So what exactly did the Soviet Union decide to do with that large body of people that they deported uh, from the Christi? What did they offer them or where did they direct them?
1: Well... Um- Russia had actually, uh, the Soviet Union, I beg your pardon, had actually been dangling the prospect of forming some sort of army even before Barbarossa. And they'd been conducting a very secret negotiation with the Polish government in exile, which, and the Polish government in exile were terribly split over whether they should be talking, and it caused a lot of resignations and tension. Uh, Whether... There were the soviet union was genuine genuinely investigating the probability of, of doing this or whether they just wanted to uh, break up the government in exile i don't know but uh, it's the plan seemed to be uh, in the air even before the before barbarossa
0: so so they was it a draft of Poles uh, to serve in the Red Army or was it saying you can volunteer if you wish or if not, you go with the uh, other refugees like my my grandfather who ended up uh, going on a train with his family to Uzbekistan? Mm.
1: It was. Um, now, it was first of all, it's a very spotty picture about who found out what was happening and when. Um, but. When people got word, they were just told that a Polish army is uh, is being formed. Go go south. You have to get to the south of the country. And so this uh, river of humanity emptied out of the gulags. Um, of course, they had to leave people who were too ill and they thought... My, they might perhaps be able to come back for some people later, and then some some were weren't even told about the inverted commas amnesty. So we get this huge uh, exodus going south by any means they could manage, and it, uh, that was about the the extent of the organisation.
0: Sounds like real chaos.
1: Absolutely.
0: The yeah.
1: stories of the family, the Trepakovsky family, got on the wrong train and ended up north of China, and then <laughs> had to had to double back. Um,
0: okay. So some so, uh, some number of uh, the Polish deportees end up joining the Red Army. Before we talk about them. Uh, what happened to those who couldn't, either because uh, because of health or because uh, or because they were the wrong age? Where did they end up?
1: Well, uh, they were heavily pressured to accept Soviet citizenship, and sometimes they could be extracted, but they just a lot of them just had to stay where they are, or there were children left in orphanages, and it, it yes, they were just left there, really. If they couldn't, they were too ill uh, to uh-huh. get there, to get um, down to the south of the Soviet Union. They,
0: wow.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. So now we have the people in the Polish army. Was there a specific title for this Polish army or was it just part of the, uh, the Red Army's front system?
1: Well, there was, there's two armies. There was, the, um, there was the Polish army in the east uh, under General Anders which was originally supposed to defend, was planned that it would have fought under the Soviet umbrella and defended the oil fields around Baku that then of course um the soviets found out that they couldn't control general Anders, um and so they got their own man who was more amenable uh uh, berling and they started their they started their kosciusko um division and that that was deployed pretty much as a Red Army unit all the way to Berlin.
0: That that must have been quite the experience. (laughs) So, I was thinking, I know that um, many Poles uh, after the, during the invasion or after the invasion, fled to the west to fight with Britain and uh, other uh, western allied forces. I'm, and I imagine they must have been incredibly uh, homesick. Mm. Um, but I wonder if there were different feelings for the uh, Polish soldiers who had just been deported, they'd just seen their families you know, horribly mm. mistreated, and now they're serving for one kind of bad guy against another kind of bad guy to <laughs> kind of liberate their country, but not really. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good description.
1: Yeah, uh, uh conflicting emotions. Well, um, the the homesickness still didn't really go away, and they still, if we're talking about the army of General Anders, they still thought that perhaps when a peace deal was was concluded, they'd be able to go home to their houses and farms. The the army of Berlin was subject to um, political indoctrination about how the borderlands were never Polish anyway. Um, and that was especially stepped up as they a- actually entered the borderlands on the way to Berlin. Um, so it, I don't think that even the, the memory of, of being removed Really dampened the hopes, certainly among Anders as men, that they would eventually manage to go home. They thought, well, we we we're, we're on we're fighting with the Allies and uh, they, we have a treaty and eventually we'll win the war and there might have to be some minor adjustments of the border, but we'll surely surely we'll we'll get it, our homes. Because it wasn't to be,
0: and when it wasn't to be, and um, they realized that uh, the the Polish the 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 Polish independence is for the foreseeable future dead in the water. What had it aside from obviously recriminations about who lost Poland and so forth? What Efforts did they make to try and keep the hope or the culture alive uh, while in exile? Oh well, the uh, immense,
1: immense efforts in Great Britain, which is what I'm most familiar with, um, the community was was it was very, very active, and they built churches, community centres, um, everything that that um you could imagine uh, that any diaspora would would need. And um it's pretty much all over Great Britain that you didn't really have to travel far to find a Polish community. And then in, in the other countries it was exactly the same. Um they kept um they kept up the traditions in Canada, South America, Australia, South Africa, pretty much everywhere you can imagine. And there was still some hope um, that in, in the course of the new, next war, war, which they were certain was going to happen, that they might be able to go home. And there was the the, um, <laughs> the old saying in the community as late as the 60s, was one atomic bomb and we will be in Lvov, two atomic bombs and we will be in Vilno.
0: <laughs> wow. So let's fast forward a bit. 19, 1989 to 1991 happens, and the evil, uh, stop, uh, the Soviet Union has collapsed, uh, Ukraine and Poland and Eastern Europe outside of Russia, and Belarus is now uh, democratic and free. Um, what, if any, efforts have been made? Uh, in those countries, to commemorate and to discuss the experiences of things like the Kresi, mm, there, like monuments or museum or physical museums and so forth, it's
1: extremely difficult. And there is there are is some in Vil- Vilnius still has a, a large Polish community despite the large demographic engineering and there you'll find um monuments and commemorations but the it's a very very difficult issue in 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 belarus and even more so in ukraine um whereas the belarusian population wouldn't mind uh remembering the deportations and what happened to their polish neighbors and One political party even said that um, that if if they got into power, that they would restore property um, to everyone except the military settlers who lived in west in the lands that are now West Belarus before World War Two. And and in the south, though, it's um, in Ukraine. It's extremely difficult. Well, uh, memories of the interwar Polish state and its iniquities towards the Ukrainians have coloured things. And there are community groups which started to become active again in the late 80s in in the uh, regions like Lvov and the surrounding regions. But um, those... Uh, towns were emptied of the Polish population much more um, thoroughly than in in Belarus, where the la- the labour was needed to rebuild after the war. So the the largest centre, the largest centre of Polish culture in Ukraine now is actually Zhitomir, which wasn't in the Second Polish Republic, and uh, it was lost in the in the uh, I think the first or second partition in 1790s um, but it's the Polish population there by virtue of not being on a strategically important border, have managed to stay and <laughs> yeah there's a very active community there they've got the church and church services in Polish they've got a a TV repeater, rebroadcasting, TVP, Polonia, and things like that. Cool.
0: cool. So, how's about your museum? Uh, I took a look at the website. It's got quite a bit of uh, interesting information. Um, has, has the uh, Crisis Siberia uh, Online Museum managed to break through to broader audiences, or is it primarily as a Sort of support for uh, people already uh, involved in mm. trying to commemorate uh, that, this experience?
1: Well, everything to do with our digital presence has, I think, su- surprised all of us in the, uh, in, the, in the take up and the interest. Um, the, the group originally just started as a Yahoo discussion group. In the year 2001, which was started by our director, Stefan Wisniewski. And then in 2009, um, they put up the website and I joined in 2013. And my constant experience has been finding out that more people were interested than I ever imagined. We now have a Facebook group with 2,200 members around the world. Wow. And, and the Twitter account, which I would, would have been happy with 100, I would have thought that was a good result for something so niche. Um, and that's now somewhere in the 9,200s. So the, it's it's been a constant pleasant surprise to find out um, how interested people were Something that I perhaps didn't take fully into account when I sort of began this journey was that the post-war Polish diaspora was pretty much was overwhelmingly from Cressy. I knew how many I knew there was a large diaspora in Britain, but I perhaps didn't fully appreciate how how many of them were actually from the East. And if you go to say, churches and community centers in Manchester it it's a picture of Vilna on the wall, not Krakow or Warsaw and the yeah the we've also the fact that we want to have consciously wanted to include the pre-war minorities um, in in everything that we do um not just reflecting the fact that they served in the military, but just out of a sense of just trying to to just to try and be even-handed and recognise that it's, that it's their land as well. It was their history, and um, and it's part of what made it so special was that mix of people. And we would also would be um, sort of a, ignoring a, something really interesting if we didn't reach out to our Belarusian and Ukrainian and Jewish and Tatar friends. So it's it's been a, a complete surprise, the interest in it.
0: Well, given that, uh, what uh, plans uh, does the museum have uh, for the future to expand uh, and to enlarge itself?
1: We're currently in the last stages of rebuilding the um, the virtual museum, the website platform, uh, which was hacked uh, from the east. i say no more than that. But <laughs> after a certain law was passed about September 17th, then mysteriously our website was hacked. And so while we were fixing that, we took the opportunity to update the the whole thing. And so there's a massive rebuild of the website, which I think is almost ready to be uh, unveiled and we're working with partners like the Siberiac Museum in Biawistok and they will physically display the I- items that we'll, we'll document so, and we'll, we're thinking that this is going to be quite a, a deep relationship between us and them because it it gives them a resource and it gives us a, a repository and not to not to sound morbid, but we have to start thinking about what happens after we die and how this is going to be carried forward um, because we can't just hope that everything will be all right. So we've been talking to bodies like that museum and about who's going to who's going to um, take the collection, but they have to use it. They can't just put it in a storeroom and shut it away and let it gather dust. Um, so in the in the future, a further expansion of the website, there's such a backlog of testimony and documents to be uploaded. Um, and uh, more cooperation with physical museums is the future.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing how it develops, uh, and you can all find uh, this at uh, kresy-siberia.org. Keep tabs on there. Uh, Tim, thank you very much for coming on.
1: Thank you.